Um, good morning, everybody, and thank you for such a, a warm welcome. It's really wonderful to be here in Sydney. I'm from Cape Town, and Cape Town is a very beautiful city. So I was thinking, oh, Sydney, Sydney. Well, it's really exquisite, and it's wonderful to be here in the, in the Sydney Opera House, too. Um, the, just to point out the empty chair, that is a tradition of PEN, which is a freedom of um, expression organization. And we always have an empty chair on the desk, on the podium to acknowledge writers who are detained or have been killed for what they have written. So seeing as it's International Women's Day, I would like to dedicate it to the women writers who are in prison in Iran and various places. Um, if you go onto the Penn International website, there's profiles of these very brave women who've done that. The other women I would like to dedicate that chair to are all the girls and the women in this world who are denied access to education because of their gender. I think that's one of the most fundamental uh, limitations on freedom of expression that we can have where your body means that you're denied access. And I think you all would know Malala Yousef, that young Pakistani girl who was shot by the Taliban. For all the girls like that, Asia, in Africa, even in Europe and America, where being a girl stops you from going to the heights that you should do, and even the normal everyday thing of having an education. So let's think about those girls. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about um, the terrible act that I did, which, as you can imagine, was abandoning my children for a year. Um, but I think what people do and how you live your life as a woman is very much shaped by uh, the world that forms you. So I'm going to take you back to what I think of as my primal scene. Freud proposed that for the psyche there's a primal scene that sets up our concerns and focuses, that sort of cathexis of pleasure and pain, that it's a heart at the heart of all meaning-making, which is what storytelling is. And I think for writers you have the same thing. For me it happened when I was six. Um, a very hot Transvaal summer, which is near Johannesburg, in perhaps the darkest times of apartheid South Africa. I'd gone with my family to visit farmer friends of theirs in the Orange Free State, which is, was really the dark heart of racism in South Africa. And while all the adults went to sleep, I got restless, and I wandered off from the big, cool house towards the stables. Farms very big in South Africa. And I was drawn there by the sounds coming from there, sounds that as I approached and they came more into focus, I realized were the sounds of a woman's distress and anger and of a child sobbing. I moved closer, hidden by a line of thorn trees, to see what was happening. And what I saw was this. A child of my own age, six, tied onto a bench, arms and legs spread eagled. He was wearing the white shirt and the khaki shorts that every African schoolboy wears. Next to him stood a woman, and I recognized her because she cleaned the farmhouse. I'd seen her there this morning and she'd made my bed and she was pleading with the farmer, my parents' friends, to let her little boy go. He did not even look at her. The farmer's eyes were on this boy's quivering back. The woman stopped begging and the boy caught sight of me and he stopped sobbing, his eyes locked onto mine. Same age, the same terror, and now this immeasurable gulf between the two of us. There was a moment of that intense silence that you get in the bush sometimes, and Ted, the farmer, 
had a shambok, which is a rawhide whip, in his right hand, and he raised it. As he did so, I stepped out from behind the hedge, thinking that this would stop him, my presence. But it had no effect. He brought that whip down on the boy's back five, six, seven, eight times. I lost count. Transfixed by the boy's white shirt, splitting under the blows and turning red. That little boy made no sound, his eyes on me, the witness to his pain and shame all the time. Then the farmer got bored or tired, but anyway, he threw the whip at the boy's mother and told her to wash it, and he put it away. And put it away. He walked off back to the farmhouse. I watched as she untied her son and tried to cradle him, but he would not have it. He struck her in the face, and that is when I turned and ran uh, back to the house to tell my parents to get redress, to make sure that my being witness would mean that there were consequences. So I woke my sleeping mother and father and told them what had happened. I tried to tell them of the violence and of my intense shame that I could not stop it, of my incomprehension that even though Ted, this man, had seen me, he had just continued to beat that little boy. My parents looked at me and they looked at each other, and then my father said that Ted must have had his reasons, that the boy must have done something, that it was his farm. And my mother said that I shouldn't have gone out by myself, that it wasn't safe. And then we went to dinner, and everyone was talking and laughing, and the boy's mother served drinks and canapes to all of us white people on the veranda, and she had flecks of blood on her shoes. The next day we went home, and it was as if this boy's ripped skin was nothing. The moment, an ordinary one in the world in which I grew up, has stayed with me, though. It is the moment to which I have returned all my writing life and my political life. There, at the center of it, the violence and this man's pleasure in it. Because on his face, I realized later, as he beat that little boy whose name I never knew, was the same expression that a man gets in the moment of orgasm. For me, this act of witnessing which I felt was tainted by my own cowardice and my complicity and my helplessness, gave birth to a calling to speak and to write and to report what happens. What one sees if one only looks in order to see that justice is done. That was the origin, I think, of all my work, my vocation, really. And it's not always been an easy one, and it's one I've often felt shame about because you never do enough if you write. Words are powerful and powerless at the same time, especially in the face of men who wield whips and fists and guns. The repression around me in South Africa, the racism and the violence, was inescapable. And if one grows up in a country where history happens in a brutal and spectacular fashion as it has done in South Africa during my lifetime, yourself and your work um, is defined for you by the choices that you must make in order to live ethically and meaningfully in a place. If you were white, as I am, to do nothing meant a profound complicity with a system that has bequeathed me so much tainted privilege. I feel that to bear witness to the truth of where I live was both a duty and a calling, and I felt that very strongly as a student. I was a student in South Africa during the 1980s, which was really a long, undeclared um, civil war. Um, that's when I started working as a journalist at 18, and I got involved in the mass politics of protest, which uh, those of you old enough to remember will have seen on your, on your TV screens. 
1985, a state of emergency was declared. I was then in my final year at university. Um, and the police were given unlimited powers of arrest and detention. I was arrested right at the end of that year, just before my exams, um, and put into detention. There were 40,000 people in detention there, so it wasn't uh, a great measure of my own valiance. Um, and I was taken to a maximum security prison called Polsmore. These walls kind of garlanded with razor wire and dogs, guards with dogs and guns. We were herded down this labyrinth of passages. It was kind of like an Escher drawing. I just saw these little hands and these fish eyes of people, you know, these leers of people's glances and stuff, and taken to this very secure section, but controlled by the security police. In this tiny cell that I had, was two and a half paces long, one and a half wide. There's a toilet, a table, a bed, one gray blanket, and high up this window in which you can see the sky. We had no idea how long, I had no idea how long we were held. It was indefinite detention. Um, so I was there for several days. I was 21. I must say, I, um, the value of literature, we weren't allowed to read or anything, and I realized that I could memorize I had memorized several of Shakespeare's full plays. As you sit there completely on your own, you kind of go through the pages, and there were some blanks. So the idea of literature and this idea of storytelling was very important to me in that time. Anyway, after some time, I was called for my first interrogation late one night. So there, I'm in my nighty, no bra, no nothing. And the guard escorting me was really unhappy. She was a prison guard. Um, special branch, she kept muttering, they come here at night and they make us bring you, they make us wait outside, and if anything happens to you, she jabbed me in my arm, we are to blame. But she opened the door and ushered me in anyway. Um, two men were waiting for me, um, and the whole setup, if you're a young woman in a prison cell, is very much around the narrative of a rape, um, and this kind of great power that men have over women's bodies in that kind of detention. Um, my fear of them, it was a really like a sexual terror, it kind of slipped under my skin and headed towards a bone like a filleting knife is what it felt like. And it got right into my marrow. The interrogations went on quite long and eventually I was charged with treason which carries the death penalty. And I read this thing and my throat just closed. I was 21 years old. I thought, Jesus, somebody's going to hang me for going to a protest. They didn't, as you can see. Um, and, but we were brought to court, and then I was released after that. And I left South Africa shortly after that. Um, it seemed to me then that the choice was either kind of armed struggle, that it was so extreme, the politics. And I really knew that my weapons were words and not guns. And I went off to London, and now I'm getting to the, perhaps the focus of how I ended up leaving my children. I was so adrift and kind of traumatized by this experience, although I didn't call it that at that time, that I fell pregnant completely unplanned. And that little girl, um, who's now 26, in a way she was like a kind of grappling hook into the future. And what I said to myself, I had a place to do a master's and various things, I said, I will do this later. This meant my work my career, my life. I had no idea how I was going to do it. I mean, my model of... South Africa is a very conservative place in terms of gender. My mother, model of mothering was that you, like, 
I know, cooked things and washed things and like stopped babies from killing themselves by falling off playgrounds. It was, but so I had this two two things going. Anyway, so I had Olivia, um, and um, then we came back to South Africa and I started working. I got pregnant with another child. I got depressed while I was pregnant. I felt I'd been disappeared somehow into motherhood in the same way I'd been disappeared into this prison. I just vanished. Those of you who had children, I'm sure you will recognize that feeling as that somehow you just disappeared as an intellectual, productive human being. You'd slip into the shadow world of mothers somehow. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Um, I'm going to try and do this and fail. Okay, we'll do no. <laughs> I've never used slides in my life. So they kept on saying, do you want to use a slide at the Sydney Opera House? And I thought, I should show you something. But um, I, so I had, and then I had another baby. I kept on having babies. I was writing books. I was doing various things. And then I, one very hot afternoon, I applied for a scholarship. It was in the newspaper. It was a Fulbright scholarship which would take me to the States. And um, I applied for it, and I forgot Completely, I carried on doing my stuff. I had my own business. Um, I was making films and doing like, but slotting in my work around. Oh, there, there came the Slotting in my work around my children in a way of like doing it as an extra rather than as the main focus of my life. Now, this picture I wanted to show you. This beautiful. I don't know if you can see it properly. It's a very classic picture of the Madonna when she when when that annoying angel came and told her, despite being a good girl, you're going to have a baby, um, which I think is probably one of the meanest things. She didn't even get to have sex. She didn't go on a date. She just got a baby. But um, in many of the depictions of the Madonna, she is sitting there reading and studying. And you all know that feeling when you're reading and someone comes to you and says, darling, where are my socks? <laughs> or, Mom, can I have a sandwich? It's that feeling of, like, you want to kill them, but you've also lost your place in your book. So that, to me, crystallized, in a way, the choice that I, had, that I ended up making, because how it's set up in our Western culture, and I think globally, is that you either have the life of the mind and work, and intellect and focus and concentration and somebody else looking after your socks <laughs> or your vocation is maternity and with that like with Mary you get like a golden hat thing and <laughs> fancy blue clothes and you get to sit really still in a painting for the rest of your life looking like a mother you know that I think really kind of sets it up anyway so I got on another hot afternoon I got this letter saying that I had a scholarship to do a master's and a PhD in comparative literature in New York City. Now, I lived in a town called Vintook in Namibia, which would make Alice Springs look like the center of the universe. <laughs> and I listened to my three little girls who were then aged... Let me try this again. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, that's just me being the Madonna. Nine months, nine months pregnant, writing with my first baby, trying to write a novel, which I left for 10 years. So there were my little girls. There's Olivia, 
Hannah and Emma. Those were the little girls that um, the scholarship said to me I was going to have to leave. But I'd made this Faustian pact to myself when I fell pregnant with Olivia. Every single grain in my body wanted to have her. Every single cell. I'm totally pro-choice. My mind was saying, abort, terminate. You don't have a job. You don't have a career. You're 24 years old. I lived in London in some god-awful area filled with South Africans and Australians and barmen. You know, like, that was my life. And I was thinking, I'm going to bring a baby into this. You must be mad. I, but I had this body response, which I'm sure many of you will recognize, of this great desire to have this baby that I had conceived, this little thing that made my life meaningful. So I had her, but the pact I'd made was that I would go off. Um, so I sat and I looked at this letter, and it was the most astonishing scholarship. It covered everything. It's very prestigious. It um, was two years at the most wonderful university. And I just felt this, like, I thought this is the crossroads. I'd promised myself. I'd really made a Faustian pact. I said, I won't kill this fetus that I'm pregnant with, but I will do it later. And it came, the reckoning came. Um, so I accepted. I didn't know how the hell I was going to do it, but um, I thought I've worked, I'd made a film just before that in Angola where we had to go through minefields, and I thought, okay, I spent three weeks traveling in a UN vehicle, and I didn't get blown up by a landmine. This will be okay. Um, how I was going to do it, I had absolutely no idea. Um, but this desire to write, this idea, the desire to bear witness probably was such a compulsion. Being a writer, having a vocation is a bit like having a mental disorder, I think. Eventually, you have to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like a person who's addicted to cocaine or nicotine like I am, you put it off, put it off, and then you have to do it. And it was amazingly my mother who enabled to do it. She's a gifted, talented woman. Her generation, she had turned all of that ability into being a very good doctor's wife, which is really like a sort of abrogation of the self and your ability and so much. And she said to me, I've never forgotten these words, she said, darling, if you don't do this, you will burden your children for the rest of your lives by saying, what if? What if? And they will feel like it's your fault that you weren't brave enough to go. And I have to say what she added is that me, she said, me and your dad will keep the children for a year. You go to New York. I mean, <clears throat> my only idea of New York was kind of Gotham City. I'd never been there before. <laughs> or, and she said, you go there, you sort it out, and after a year I will bring them over to you, which she did. We lived there for the second year. And she made it possible for me to work and mother in a way that she had not done. <clears throat> There's a great deal to be said for that, for the gifts that our mothers, our literal mothers and the generations before us have given us in able to be women. And much of what we do as workers and as mothers is people with vocations and not, is to honor the sacrifices of our mothers and their bravery by taking on the gifts that they've given us. Um, I accepted her gift with love and trust. She'd been a very good mother to me. And I left my three girls and went to the States to start my graduate studies. It was hilarious when I got there. I stepped off the aeroplane. It was blastingly hot. And I caught a taxi 
with a guy who looked exactly like Vladimir Putin does. He says to me, where you go? So I said, okay, I was going to somewhere in Brooklyn. He says, how to drive? So I said, well, I don't know. I've never been to America before. He says, I don't know. I don't have a map. So anyway, so me and my Russian, we somehow managed to find this, this place I was meant to be going. But I left Olivia, who was 10, Hannah was 7, and little Emma was only 3. Her skin still had that warm peach texture that babies have. And when I saw her a year later, she had child skin. It had changed the texture that had changed. I took three Valiums to get on the plane. My heart was just like hammering against my chest. And I think only Olivia, the 10-year-old, she had sufficient sense to know that a year can feel much longer than 365 sleeps. And when I looked back, when I left Vintok, I looked back, and she stood there at customs, and she stood there, her jaw set, and her little arms as tight as a mother around her two little sisters. It was, I think, it was agony, is the only way I can describe it. And those first few weeks I was there were absolutely desolate. I heard these accusing voices in my head saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why? How are you monster? You worse than Medea. At least Medea put her children out of her, their misery by stabbing them and getting them finished. I just left mine. And hearing them on the phone, I saw them briefly at Christmas time. It was bittersweet. Um, but it was only that pledge I made to myself that kept me going. And... As you were saying, the jealousy, the, the unbelievable feeling of being able to think long thoughts. That I could start on Monday afternoon and still be thinking, these girls are in the front, on Friday, and on Friday I would work it out. It was astonishing that to write or to, to do anything creative or original, you need a rhythm of thought which children utterly disable. It's like someone goes in the electrics in your, in your head and like plugs everything in the wrong place. That's what children do to your brain. Um, you don't get stupid. They just sabotage you. Um, and it was unbelievably amazing to sit there and to read and to think and to start writing. And to uh, a lot of the focus that I did of the work was around trauma and... Um, violence, history, I could suddenly get the perspective on this fascinating and brutal country that I'd come from, which gives you, has given me a very clear understanding of how the world is and how it works. But I could, in a way, do honor to many of the experiences that I'd had, which I'd kind of try to deal with by having children and by having many parts of what I can see now with depression to do with post-traumatic stress, to do with um, living in a place which I couldn't find a way to live in ethically. And so I did that, and I did the good thing. I was 35 then. The good thing about being an older student, mature, what are we called now? <laughs> mature student, um, is that you're so convinced that you have become completely retarded and you're so terrified by this kind of like sea of young people and the girls all seemed to have breasts, which I thought they could have used as, like, airline pillows. They were so high up. Anyway, none of them had done any, any breastfeeding whatsoever. I worked really hard, and I did really well, and I decided that I was not retarded, which was wonderful. Anyway, a year later, 
My girls arrived at the airport. My mom brought the... And my mom is tiny. She's really, really tiny. And somehow she got through all those JFK uh, monsters. Um, and she arrived there with my little girls. And I promise you, as... They can, I could see them coming through, could see them coming through. It felt like forever until they all flew, all three of them, into my arms, and it was the best feeling. That, and perhaps the publication of my first book. Be back to. <laughs> you see, back to the Mary situation. Um, so they. They came back. We all kind of lived together. We spent a year in, in New York, which was fantastic for them and for me. And then I returned back um, to South Africa, and I started writing. It was an interesting um, experience because I felt I had done such a big thing. I had to really make this gamble and this investment pay off. So I worked all the time, which I also... I think now, looking back, I burnt out after about 10 years. I did about 15 books in eight years because I just had this feeling I had to pay back for this massive debt I owed to, I don't know, the world of, that keeps that very evil debt bank that women feel we have to pay all the time. Um, the girls survived. They grew up into very fine, very ambitious, and I think brilliant young women. And they have a bond between them, forged in that year that they mothered each other. They are so close. They're like a pack, the three of them, which is the most ama- I think the most amazing gift that they, they had from this experience. Sometimes I always feel separate from that because I was not there. I was not. They looked after each other. They mothered each other, and they did it extremely well. And I think it's sometimes for me it's impossible to reconcile this feeling of amputated motherhood that I had with the exhilarating lightness of being alone. So what I decided is that to be a mother and to leave your children and to be ambitious, which I think is very important, to say I want to do this thing, the worst thing that can happen is I can fall down and pick myself up and start again. I think that idea of ambition is very important for women and I had it, I have it. Um, I hope my girls have it too, this thing that will override your feelings of uh, conventional obligation to do the things that you need to do. Um, That idea of ambition and power and place in the world belongs as much to mothers of children, I think, as it does to their fathers. It's It's something men stole from us, I think, and which patriarchy takes from us, and we need to take it back. So I went back to South Africa and I wrote a lot. I did a lot of journalism, I did a lot of films. I started this Claire Hart series, which is now being turned into a television series. I'm very excited to be working on those treatments. So it paid off. My children were good. They were fine. I asked all of them, actually, I've asked them over the years what they thought of my middle daughter, Hannah, who I think, she was born with middle child syndrome, so I had to have a third child just to give her therapist something to be able to deal with this, this um, bowl of fire that she is. She said to me, the best thing that she learned with me being away in that year was that if I died, it would be fine. Because, 
because she said before that she'd always been afraid that if I died there would be no one to look after. But because she'd been looked after by my extended family, she realized that, she said, I would be sad, Mom, don't worry, I will be sad. But she felt secure in the world. I was interested that that happened, that it gave her a sense of security. Um, my oldest daughter, I asked her now, she's now working as a journalist in Turkey, which is perhaps the most dangerous place. I said, don't, don't work in Turkey. Like, go and report on things and, you know, the Scottish independence movement or something safe like that. And she said to me, Mama, what would you do? So I said, well, I'd stay in Turkey and get the story. She said, okay, well, enough stayed. Um, but I asked her recently what she had felt about her Days of Abandonment, which, by the way, is that wonderful Elena Ferrante novel called The Days of Abandonment. She told me, she said, about work, it makes her think that work is not a duty, but a thing you find and throw yourself into and weave into your whole life. She says about my mother, meaning me, and I didn't make this up, she does what she wants, she's gracious and determined and endlessly able to listen and care without compromising herself. Now, I just have to say, she was in the process of asking me for an aeroplane ticket to come and visit me, but financial incentives aside, I was very moved by that, that for, for my daughters, having a mother who went into the world and did difficult things in which they were cared for and loved, but I did them and somehow put myself first, has enabled them to make very brave decisions. They are extremely fearless in what they do. And I think part of it is because with me, with my friends, with the, my colleagues, women colleagues, they've seen another way of being a mother, other ways of being mothers, other ways of being women that has freed them up. It makes for very complicated relations for them with the boys that they're with. Because I've noticed a massive progression in young women and rather more glacial evolution <laughs> with young men. And I think that's something that we need to, to kind of consider, but it's given them a way of being. And I think for me, if I hadn't done that, uh, that massive leap, and it was a massive leap, I would have been a very unhappy, very frustrated woman in a tiny town writing endless newspaper articles for the local thing. Thank you.